Welcome to On the Middle East, our Monitor's podcast on the big stories unfolding in the region. My name is Ambrin Zaman, and today I'll be looking at escalating tensions in the Red Sea, where the United States just carried out a fourth round of missile strikes against sites controlled by Shia Houthi rebels in Yemen. Since November, the Iran-backed Houthis have been attacking commercial vessels in the Red Sea in order to disrupt maritime traffic with Israel. They say they will only stop when Israeli aggression against the Palestinians in Gaza ends. The United States has been hitting back since January 11th from naval ships deployed in the Red Sea, and on Wednesday, the Biden administration announced that it was reassigning the Houthis to its list of specially designated global terrorists. The move has prompted worries that Yemen's estimated 32 million people will bear the brunt. More than 75% of all Yemenis depend on aid for their survival. U.S. officials insist that military action against the Houthis is solely aimed at containing and deterring them. However, there is mounting concern that the conflict will broaden. With us here to discuss the latest developments is Badr al-Saif, a Harvard-trained assistant professor of history at Kuwait University. So welcome to our program, Badr. It's so kind of you to make the time because I know you're highly in demand at this time. Thanks for having me, Amber, and it's always a pleasure. So until recently, the conflict in Yemen was primarily framed as one pitting um, Iran-backed Shia Houthi rebels against Saudi Arabia and its coalition partners, and that they were backed by the US and the UK. Um, But today, there's a rather different picture, isn't there? One of the Houthis vs. the United States. Um, And the Saudis trying to sort of distance themselves from the ongoing hostilities in the Red Sea. Could you kindly explain the dynamics underpinning this shift? And should we be worried about a broader conflagration? And what might that look like? Let me step back and and give an overview of how I think the region is moving. And based on that overview, we can then understand where the Houthi action vis-a-vis other actors figure in. The Middle East is going through uh, what I call fragility and fluidity at the same time. Now, the fragility takes on various manifestations. It takes on different forms. Most are concerned with that very present mode of fragility, meaning the ongoing wars, the multiplicity of conflict. And this has unfortunately become uh, a second norm, if you may. People are tending to accept that this is normal. And this is scary because it shouldn't be normalized. Conflict should never be normalized. And everyone everywhere in the world has the right to dignity, to freedom, to justice, to living in peace. And the layers of fragility are really one upon the other. But if you go deep down, the basic layer is going to the Palestinian conflict. The Palestine-Israel conflict is really key. And it baffles me, uh, and I'm speaking right now while I'm in D.C., it baffles me how Western policymakers don't really get that this is the main issue driving the region. 
it has been the issue since World War II. And even prior, I'd go back to the nation state era and it continues to, and it has reconfigured in different shapes and forms. And that has mushroomed into different layers. Yes, I get it. There are separate con uh, conflicts that do not have direct contact with Palestine, Israel, but they all relate to how the different leaders across our historical eras have used that conflict to rationalize their own actions. And yet now we have, we have, you know, failure in Yemen, we have failure in Sudan, we have failures in Syria, in Lebanon, in Iraq, somehow, in Libya, and the list goes on. So this is one layer of fragility. Another layer of fragility is really, if you can call it that, but the, the failing social contract across various nations in the region. Are we providing to the people? Are we providing them with the, the, the aspiration to live to live both with excitement and compassion and to live honorably. And I talk about employment opportunities. I talk about education services. I talk about being treated with, 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 you know, with, good, with good ethics. And it's not only about ruler and ruled, it's even across society. How do we deal with a different other? This has compounded our fragility situation. And Add to that the different crises that have struck us, whether it be the latest inflation, the pandemic before this, food security, water security, and it adds up. Now, that's one bucket. Let's go to the second bucket, which is the fluidity aspect. And that's where I think if we bring them together, you're going to see how that manifests in the Yemen uh, conflict. The region is really very fluid movement among different parts is ongoing, it's vibrant, it's active as we speak. Different parties are getting at each other, different parties are becoming friends once again. The movement has been very nimble, very agile, and it has been the case for a couple of years, mainly from the part of the Middle East that I argue is leading the, world, the Arab world today, which is the Gulf states. And that has mushroomed into different parts of the world. Now, the funny thing is, this nimbleness, this agility is really not being picked up by Western policymakers, mainly the US. And let me tell you this, Ambrin, it's not because of the lack of knowledge. I think they know what they're doing. They understand the dynamics in the region. They come too often to the region. But there seems to be a predominant narrative in the West that is very stuck in one position. And that one position has really lent itself to complicating the scenarios on the ground in the Middle East. And that takes us to the Yemen uh, Houthi conflict. Now, for several years, the ideology of the Houthis is nothing new, Ambrin. They are uh, a militia that has a certain ideology, that has a certain way of going about things. It's all documented. We've seen how they've reformed their curricula. And I don't know if the word reform is really befitting because it takes into consideration certain aspects of society that doesn't put people on an equal footing. Women are sidelined. Uh, children are being utilized as soldiers. And people are going into a theology of a layering of people in which there is a layer of descendants of the prophet and everyone comes under them. And that is really medieval in thinking. We've gone beyond this and it's arguably anti-Islamic if you think about it, even. All of this has been ignored by the West 
whenever the Gulf states have been raising this issue, whenever the officially sanctioned government of Yemen has been raising this issue, when the UN and the GCC have come together and they've put together a UN resolution that says, these are the steps that we move forward with, which is a Yemeni-Yemeni procedure that the Houthis were part of and that they've gone against and they've revolted or they've risen in a coup in 2014 and the rest is history. So the irony is, you know, the, the double standards that come from the West are quite baffling. So when it comes to normal people dying in and out for the past nine years, and for this to be the biggest humanitarian crisis in the world, the poorest country on earth, no one touches the topic or even deems it a crisis. And even this current administration in the US lifts the Houthis from the FTO label that was put on them. Now, whether they, it was put on them for a rational reason by the Trump administration, that's another topic that could be argued elsewise. But the context is quite interesting. And I say this today, because only yesterday, they've redesignated them under a different manifestation of the terrorist label. And I find this baffling because you're more concerned about shipping and navigation rights than human uh, humans. And this is concerning. Now, to your question, and this has been a long-winded introduction. I hope Not it wasn't all. It was incredibly uh, useful to our audience because too often we ignore the background and dive into the current situation as I did with my question. So thank you, Bader, for that introduction. Thank you. And, and this context is key because it tends to be forgotten. Now, the Houthis are there because they want to solidify their presence in Yemen. This quest for Palestine has been part of their ideology. It's not as if it was born today, but it's also being used to advance their own purposes. And what the U.S. is doing is it's falling for the bait that the Houthis have put in because they were calling for the attack. They wanted them to attack the Houthis because it would boost their popularity. And that's not going to add any deterrence to the Houthis, really. And as we've seen in the past few days, we've had four or five strikes now from the Western coalition. And it's a tit-for-tat approach, Ambrin. It's not going to change the status quo. So it's what gonna... should the United States be doing? They should think humans first. They should look at the different root causes of conflict in the region. Be it Palestine-Israel, there needs to be a ceasefire there as a starter, and that should have been done yesterday, not even today. And we should look at the Yemeni, Yemeni peace talks that are ongoing, and that have been quite difficult, let me tell you. Uh, the Saudis and the Houthi have been talking for two years since the uh, ceasefire that they've had in 2021, and it's been quite a process to get it moving forward. Adding bullets... Adding missiles to the mix is not going to solve the issue. Oh, we need absolutely not. But you, I mean, you can say that the Houthis kind of initiated this round of hostilities. So what absolutely. would the smart what would the smart thing for the US have been to do? And in that context, what should the Saudis be doing? The smart thing is to hold themselves, to brace themselves, to fight the attempt to go after the attacks that they've been putting forward because they haven't been, uh, I mean, th their infrastructure is not as developed. They should go for the source of the issues. They should end any killing that's happening in the region. That should be on the short term. On the long term, they should be enabling the region 
to solve its own problems, really, I think regionalism is the way to go. To have the West being pulled in every time there is a conflict is not helpful. And this is something that you don't want to do. But they say what they do not act upon because they've been bringing themselves back in whenever there is an issue. Stopping Gaza is key. Looking at the Houthi ideology, trying to tweak it, trying to work with it, empowering those parties that are trying to come to terms, uh, to peaceful terms with the Yemeni actors is, is important. It's very challenging. And it's it will take months, if not years, to come to such an understanding. Unfortunately, this is the sad reality. But at least we have the mindset to think constructively. What we're doing today is only adding another layer of that fragility that I've been talking about. We saw Iran attacking other centers. We saw Pakistan responding to Iran. And now the Houthis are responding to the U.S. Sure, we can't have a peaceful life with all of those attacks. No, I, right? I, I agree. I agree with your fundamental point. But uh, in practical terms, uh, if we also accept that uh, this current administration, much like the Trump administration, seems to you know, value its relationship or came to in this case uh, with Saudi Arabia very highly, uh, you would think that it would perhaps be formulating those policies with Saudi Arabia. What do you think is actually going on? I mean, we, we witnessed the Saudi reticence. It has not joined this coalition uh, attacking the Houthis. So what what kind of talks, conversations do you think are occurring at that level? And I repeat the question, how do the Saudis come into play? What can they be doing? The Saudis are known for their patience. Uh, this has been the mainstay of their foreign policy, which, by the way, was the exception was during the early years of King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman. Uh, and they've gone back to what they're used to traditionally operate in terms of their foreign po policy scene. And that strategic patience is important. Uh, discussions behind closed doors is very important to them. And I think this is ongoing with all parties involved. And them not joining the efforts with the U.S. is because... The U.S. has unfortunately put itself as an unreliable partner when it comes to starting something and not going to the end. We've seen this happen with the support for the uh, Yemen coalition at the beginning and then the backtracking of that end. You ask about Saudi Arabia and how they would deal with the U.S. I think the U.S. is taking its cues from Israel, really. I mean, th that relationship is more important. They're more mindful of that file. And you would say that about the current conflict in, well, tensions in, in the Red Sea also taking its cues from Israel there as well? I think there it's, it's helping by zooming in on the symptom and not the cause. And that helps the Israeli narrative, the Israeli far-right war narrative, which is not helpful. I mean, look, the, the region's quest, when I say regionalism, this involves all parties. Now, if Israel wants to be part of that, it should act more stately and it should show its willingness to accommodate Palestinian grievances and Palestinians' quest for dignity. This whole dehumanization business, and it has become a business. If you look at what's been happening for decades, this has franchised into different offshoots. There is no interest from the Israeli side, sadly, to push on a peace process. The peace for land has failed. And unfortunately, I mean, people talk about 
the failure of the two-state solution, but that's what they need to go to and to get both sides excited towards to then in, in, allow for some breathing space for the rest of the countries in the region to then focus on their work and not use the Palestine-Israel conflict as a raison d'etre to push for their own specific causes as the Houthis have been doing. But as I said in my initial question, this conflict, particular conflict, has always been framed as one between the Saudis and Iran. Um, so, you know, <laughs> where, where does Iran stand in all of this? I mean, uh, can we agree that Iran is backing the Houthis in this instance? Oh, definitely. Iran, Iran has been the enabler for the Houthis from day one. And the, Iran is reaping all the fruits of all its investments across the region. Uh, low cost, uh, easy infrastructure, disruptor uh, initiatives across the region. And that that also requires some working on their ideology, just as the Houthis need to see that they will benefit from collaborating with other stakeholders in their own country for the welfare of everyone. Iran needs to see this. And for Iran to see this, they need to feel that they're not threatened. And they need to feel that there is a higher stake. And I'm thinking of networked borders in that instance. And this is what the Saudi approach has been since they've uh, done their agreement with Iran last year. How can we bring in more shared interests together? Because I, you're not going to change that mentality and ideology overnight. That requires work. And it requires them seeing that we are interested in regional affairs first. Being in their shoes is quite interesting if we go through that exercise. Because in their, in their mindset... It's, it's the Gulf states who are attacking them because they have U.S. bases on the other shore of the Gulf. And that mentality, I mean, is not necessarily where the Gulf states were going with all of the bases. I mean, remember, the bases started on a bulldozer or on a high-speed fashion after the occupation of Kuwait. So it wasn't really Iran. I mean, the Iran-Iraq war ended in 88 and there weren't as many bases. So it's not them that's, that has been the target at the time, but they've become mired because they have been, unfortunately, a disruptor in the region. They, the state system, the sovereignty that we all uh, take about and that we all believe in as part of the international system is something that they're not fully in line with because they feel that they would suffocate if they go by those rules. Now, there is an opening in the region. There has been an interest in going first towards own local solutions. And I think people need to invest in this. And Western powers are, should support those initiatives. I don't think the US is going to go anywhere, by the way, when they keep saying that they're receding, they're gonna leave the region, they're there. I mean, the numbers speak for themselves, the bases, the investments, and there will be other superpowers coming in. But that's been the fate of the Middle East. It's always been receptive to different ideas, different peoples. We need to manage that formula together. But by the same token, I mean, the US does offer a real security umbrella to those states. I mean, consider Saudi Arabia that's come under attack. And I mean, having the United States there, I think was very important for them as a deterrent, even in the face of those attacks taking place. Imagine a scenario where there were no US forces, then what? Wouldn't Iran feel much more emboldened 
wouldn't the Houthis feel much more emboldened? I mean, do you believe that the U.S. should be pulling out? I don't think anyone wants the U.S. to pull out, including the Gulf states, because they would fe feel that they're not ready enough with their own local capabilities in the way that Iran is. And I know that this is the time for them to do that. But to also, um, I mean, they haven't been there for the Saudis when the Abgeg attack happened in 2019. You mean That's... You, you, the Houthis attacked? The, I mean, the Houthis claimed it, but it's, I mean, it seems as if it was Iran. from Iran, mm -hmm. you know, clearly so. And that that struck close to 20% of oil production overnight. But, I mean, what if the Americans hadn't been there was my question. It could have been much worse, right? It, it could have been much worse. And I think this is a lesson learned for all parties involved because they need to take action in their own hands. The Gulf states. And by the way, the UAE and Saudi particularly are doing that now. They're building their own local defense capabilities. They're trying to have uh, industries that cater to those fields within their countries. So this will take time. Um, I don't think, I mean, it's it's unfortunate that we're, we're, we're at this stage, but I think it's tactical when it comes to the Iran-Saudi relationship at the moment, the thong of relations. I think each party is trying to pick up their pace and understand where the other is before an, an unfortunate another round comes in. Hopefully, you know, this is the, the, you know, the ambitious me that this doesn't happen and that they come together towards shared interests, but that might be too soon to come. Let's see how, how it goes. But allow me to sort of be uh, slightly contrarian here. On the one hand, you say that um, the U.S. should allow um, you know, the region to come up with its own regional solutions and sort of not be the spoiler as it pursues what it sees as its own self-interest, which is unfettered support for Israel, uh, which goes beyond just interest, but obviously emotions in the case of uh, President Biden. Um, and then on the other hand, you say that the United States is an unreliable partner because we've seen it time and again, not pursuing things till the end. And to me, that sounds like regime change. So are you suggesting that the United States should be overthrowing the Iranian regime or the Syrian? No, I don't think I don't think I don't think that they should be. Uh, uh, regime change has been tried and it's been a failure. And mm -hmm. this is the case in Iraq and, and but I mean, the unreliability there, are, I mean, I use the Abgeg 2019, but I mean, let's also think in the minds of those policymakers on, on the Gulf states side, they took the Arab protests or the Arab Spring really seriously. When they saw the US all of a sudden drop Hosni Mubarak in Egypt, that was another wake up call. And uh, if it wasn't for the, a Gulf intervention in Bahrain, that that could have been another story there. There could have been more chaos as well. So I don't think there should be regime change. I think the U.S. is is building itself as a, I mean, every country has to pursue its self-interest. This is, you know, ABC politics, and I'm not going to deny them that. But let's also do that in partnership with your own partners in the Gulf region. Let's not be sidelined. Your position in Israel, this unfettered support to Israel, doesn't fit in. There could be a way in which you can accommodate Israeli interests and the other side. And I think if you do that, arguably, you're advancing your own U.S. national interest. 
And you're also advancing Israeli security interests, by the way, if they do that. But that takes foresight, that takes patience, that takes empathy, and there, there is, you know, a deficit of those traits, unfortunately, at this stage. Well, I mean, there's so many contradictions we could point to because, you know, we talk about the Houthis and how they treat their own people and the discrimination. But I mean, by the same token, there are many regimes in the Gulf, especially, who do the same. So um, when you lack that kind of consistency, that kind of lack of moral authority, and when you add in um, strategic inconsistency that we seem to be witnessing at this time, what you end up with really is chaos. And that's very alarming. So um, I guess I have two more questions for you, Badr. One is, you know, we mentioned the Shia element and uh, the Houthis obviously are Shia. Um, how important is that, do you think, in, in the context of the Saudi Houthi uh, hostility? And I mean, because we know there is a small Shia minority in Saudi Arabia that happens to inhabit a very strategic area, right? A lot of the oil is in that region. Tell us a little bit more about that. I think this is a political conflict. And if there is any religious motifs, they're being used for political purposes. Houthis are Zaydis. And that branch of Shiism is not the branch that aligns with Iran or the inhabitants of the Eastern province, by the way. Uh, and Zaydis, you know what they call them in, in scholastic circles, they call them the, the Sunnis of the Shiites. They're that close to the Sunni camp in terms of theology and even their books in, in uh, Republican Yemen have been taught as part of the curriculum. There wasn't that much of a discrimination. I think the issue with the Houthis has always been back in the, in the era of uh, Saleh, President Saleh of Yemen, was that they were sidelined and that they were not allowed to you know, practice in their own way or to govern federally in their own northern Sa'da region. And that's been the issue. And they saw an opening with the lack of security and with the ouster of Saleh to open up. And no one would have thought, including them, by the way, to go that far into Yemen and to hold on all these years. So I don't think religion is the issue. And by the way, even between Iran and Saudi, I think both, to be fair, for both sides, I think the ideological bent is not is at its lowest. This is a very political, uh, rational effort. Uh, and if anything, the religious element maybe can cool it off nowadays. Well, that's a hopeful note to end on, Bader. Let's hope that um, reason prevails. Indeed, indeed. That's and, and by the way, that's always been the case, but it's more manifest now. So this is a welcome change that is being more manifest. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. It was a pleasure. And this brings us to the end of this episode of On the Middle East. Thank you and goodbye. Goodbye.